president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETS sponsor, and also a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. My co-host, Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, is unfortunately on a plane at the moment, so can't be with us during the program today. I should note our discussion is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer of sale of investment products. The views of our guests are their own, not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We have a really interesting show today. On the second half of the program, we're going to have a special focus and really a, a great guest for the today's news. News uh, all over the headlines. We see President Trump to hold meetings with Prime Minister Abe of Japan, uh, and we have uh, just so happened that uh, we had Jesper Cole, who's Wisdom Trees Japan CEO, is in town in New York this week. Uh, we're going to have Jesper for half an hour on the second part of the program to talk about the meeting with Trump and Abe, uh, and really go into that. Uh, the first part of the program, we're going to have one of uh, our clients, Yasmin Norton. She's a CIO of Spinnaker Trust. We're going to talk to Yasmin about her firm, her background, uh, what she does there at Spinnaker and really talk about how they serve clients and how they how they build portfolios. Uh, let me welcome Yasmin to the show. Yasmin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I'm sorry I can't be there in person. You know, it's the the, the snow here. We I, I saw the snow yesterday. I was like, I, I bet Yasmin's not going to be able to get in town. The snow here is pretty tremendous, too. So uh, it was worth a shot. Hopefully I can come in person sometime soon. Yeah, we're going to definitely have you back here. So tell us, um, before we get into a little bit about your thoughts on the markets, how you guys build portfolios, why don't you talk to, to us about your your personal background and then give us some introduction to Spinnaker. Sure. Um, let's see. Well, I've been in buy-side research since 1999, if you can believe that. I think you and I are of similar age, Jeremy. Um, I started off at Wellington Management in Boston, uh, and I couldn't have been luckier to have started at such a great firm. I, um, I had no idea what I was getting into, and I really, truly didn't know anything in my first job. But I worked with some really great portfolio management uh, portfolio managers who, who kind of groomed the trail for me. And I spent five years there. Uh, after I, I earned my CFA while I was there. Uh, after that, I went to business school. I got my MBA at the University of Chicago, uh, Booth School of Business. It was not the Booth School when I was there. And uh, after that, I spent about a year and a half at the Boston Company. Ironically, I was covering Japan, and um, and I worked with Jesper's wife. <laughs> well, that's good timing. So <laughs> we'll love to get you yeah. connected with Jesper later in the show. Yeah, it, it was, it's funny. I, I had to put that all together when I was thinking about this today. That's great. And after that, I moved on to just cover uh, and manage uh, emerging markets money at Fidelity. So I kind of did the Boston stint for a long time. Uh, I'm from Maine originally, uh, as is my husband, and we were looking for a way to get back. And so I was lucky enough to join Spinnaker in 2011. Uh, there's a small investment movement in Portland. There are kind of three or four relatively large firms uh, by Portland standards, and we're one of them. And so at Spinnaker, we have a few different investment strategies. Our primary one, I guess you'd best call an ETF asset allocation strategy or an ETF strategy. Um, and we have three separate portfolios for that. We have one for U.S. equities, one for international equities, and one for fixed income. And we're trying to uh, beat our respective benchmarks in each of those. And then we, we offer it a la carte that way so that our clients can mix and match depending on what assets they come in with or what their preferences are. 
And we also run two U.S. equity portfolios, one with an emphasis on equity income and the other that's kind of more like a core U.S. equity concentrated product. Interesting. So tell us a little bit, so that's very good on, on your own personal background. Give us a little bit more on, on Spinnaker's foundings. How did they, you know, what, what was their, their background uh, and, and, and just what, what you'd say your typical client base looks like? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Spinnaker was founded, and forgive me, it's 2001 or 2002, uh, sometime in that time frame by Dick Curran, who is our current president and CEO. He has a law background. He worked um, at a prestigious law firm in Portland and had many, and worked with many um, uh, high net worth families during his time there. He left that law firm to join a trust asset manager, uh, and I believe he was there for about a decade and then decided to go on his own. And so at that time, he recruited Sarah Lewis to join him, and they really were the um, they were the early early founders of the fund. And she has more of a trading and portfolio management background. So the two of them really started the firm. He was lucky enough to bring on a few of the larger families with whom he'd worked at his previous job, and they remain our biggest families today. Um, but we have a number of clients. I think our average client size is somewhere between three and, and five million. But that's uh, we have some very large clients and then some smaller clients. And the needs of those clients vary a great deal depending on on what they come in with. Sure, and, and so I know I, one of your 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 responsibilities had talked about how you're looking over technology and how you're thinking about how you serve people. I mean, what would you say is when you when you talk to your clients? I mean, what are some of the the ways you're trying to address some of their unique needs? I mean, where do you see people, you know, coming into you and, and having the real the real biggest challenges that they ha- that they have today? Yeah, it's um, you know, it's interesting. I. I think our we we haven't formally done this, but I do think we segment our clients into different buckets. The the very very large families need a tremendous amount of wealth planning. Um, so well, of course, while they care about their investments, uh, there's a huge planning emphasis. There always has been at our firm, um, given that our firm is is run by a lawyer and, and will continue to be so in the next generation, if you will. Um, whereas our smaller clients uh, need more. They need more basic investment services as well as as uh, financial planning, if you will. So the needs are really different depending on who you have in there. Sure, and so it, for the for the basic, you know, financial planning and 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 you know how they're thinking about their own portfolios. Maybe walk us through what a a typical how you think about building those portfolios. You talked about the three different sleeves. You have the U.S., the international, the fixed income sleeves. Maybe maybe talk about how you would you would go through. You know, maybe not the the super uh, you know high high concentrated wealth families that that probably less you know applicable to our general population listening in. But how for somebody who comes in and you think about building them portfolios, what what's your what's your starting point? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I guess the distinction means it, it, a lot of our clients come in with legacy positions, whether they be in stocks or ETFs, and we generally have to manage around those. I think that's true for w- most of wealth management. However, if you, if you had to describe a client coming in in cash, how we might um, determine how they'd be invested, generally we leave the asset allocation up to the relationship manager with whom they'll be working. And I think you know, that's probably the most important decision at the top, how, what the risk tolerance is, what the income needs are, what miscellaneous cash needs might be, and then how to set that accordingly. Um, and then so at that point, we try to get them invested in our in our main ETF products. And we do so, we usually dollar cost average in, um, sometimes over six months, sometimes over longer than that, depending on where the market is. We've had some clients be so bold as to, you know, have a, when we have a major market downturn, they decide to go all in. And so <laughs> that's their prerogative. And most have actually been successful in making that call. 
Um, for some clients, we will ladder out individual bonds, especially if they're currently taking income. But I'd say the majority of our fixed income assets here are in ETF form and in our ETF models. Um, one thing we've recently decided, well, not recently, maybe in the last two years, is that we just didn't like the bond market. We found it pretty uh, unattractive from a valuation perspective. And so we'd removed some of our money that would have been dedicated to the fixed income sleeve and moved it into an alternatives bucket. Um, you know, which is which is hard to define. <laughs> no, that's an interesting, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, move. the idea being that the, we're hoping that the alternatives will outperform our fixed income portfolio and the ag generally, and they have. So I guess that's been the right call. Interesting. So we're, we're, let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Jessamine Norton of the CIO of Spinnaker Trust. Uh, we're talking about her firm's approach to uh, wealth management, how they build portfolios, and, and we'll maybe drill into some specific topics. Uh, we're just let, since we have somebody who's, who's who does building portfolios for people, if anybody wants to call in, we'll just give out the number here. It's one eight four four. We're in. That's 844-942-7866 if anybody wants to hop on the phone and, and talk with, with Jessamine and myself here. Um, so maybe let's talk about this. I mean, so on the fixed income side, which has been one of these real key challenges for people, what to do with historically low cash rates, bond rates. Talk about that alternatives. Because I, I tend to think of stocks, bonds, and then you have everything else in this alternatives bucket. But how, how do you think about that? What goes in the alternatives bucket? And, and how are you picking those, those areas? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's um, alter- We're new to alternatives at Spinnaker. We just really started to dip our toe in the water a few years ago. And given that our we, we will buy mutual funds if we don't find uh, an attractive option within ETFs, but our preference is to invest with ETFs. And as, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, the ETF, uh, alternative ETF landscape, there are a lot of offerings, um, but there aren't many that have a lot of AUM or a lot of trading depth. And fortunately, we're at the size where if we're going to make this a you know, 3 to 5% position in our models, we need, we need to have a certain trading depth. So that eliminates a lot of the options straight away. Uh, in the past, we'd, consider, we'd considered REITs to be alternatives, but now that it's a separate sector, um, you know, I think that's no longer applicable. And nor does it offer the equity market diversification that it used to, I think, for that very reason. And if you're worried so, about interest rates, that is one of the parts of the market you could say is probably the most vulnerable to a, a rising interest rate shock, whether it's utilities, exactly. REITs. I think about that as being, if you're worried about bonds, you should probably be worried about REITs. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so you're right. So it wasn't going to be a proper place to yeah. put alternative money if we were moving it from bonds, right? Um, I think when we, when we started, we tried to talk a lot about what the philosophy of alternatives was. What was the goal? Was it to outperform fixed income? Was it to be more of an absolute return strategy? And, and where did we see the market going? So we started uh, our first alternative foray um, in a dedicated alternatives bucket was something that's more of an absolute return fund. Mm. And that's been okay. It's done what we thought it would be, uh, what, it, what we thought it would do. About a year ago, we decided to look at um, different uh, alternative options that would benefit from inflation, and our timing was very poor. Um, I think we, we really started looking at this before the uh, R&B devaluation over the summer, so that <laughs> our timing could have been better. Um, but we wanted to have a – it was pretty contrarian at that time, but we wanted mm-hmm. to have a play that would benefit from inflation. So we dug around, and we found something. And despite the rocky start, um, it had a, a pretty good 2016, and we plan to leave it in there for the time being. 
Very good. And just a reminder, because uh, you, you did a good job there, we, we're not allowed to talk specific funds on our program, so it's, it's good you haven't gone into any individual tickers, Thank you, Jeremy. Which, which, is, which is good for me. Um, so no, it's, it's, so it's interesting on the absolute return category, because that's something I, you know, I think is a lot, um, you know, ends up being like a buzz phrase of, you know, everybody's looks, everybody wants absolute return. But the question is, what kind of strategies actually can be guaranteed to generate absolute returns absolutely all the time? Um, wh- where do you, where, what are the, what are the things you're looking for in those type of managers there? Yeah, it's, um, you know, and, and a lot of these quant funds, uh, don't have a huge history, not a formal history. Everyone's got a back test history. So, so we, we took a risk when we, when we made our first foray into alternatives and it's, you know, perhaps it feels like it hasn't been as solid as it, as we wanted it to be simply because equity markets are up so much, <laughs> But it's it's largely performed the way we thought it would, and what they hope to achieve is three to five percent in excess of of the risk free rate. They've had some drawdown months, but for the most part, they have been flat to down moderately in, in the big down periods. So I suppose if we're trying to protect capital, that's our number one priority. Uh, we wish it would have participated more in the equity market upside over the last few years, but I guess it's doing its job. So what we looked for was. Uh, correlation to the S&P 500, correlation to the ag, and how it did under um, periods of stress, you know, market drawdowns. Yep. So, so on the inflation fighting front here, is, is are, there's been a lot of when I look at the asset class and and or where where people are moving money within ETFs, there's been a huge amount of flows towards tips funds looking for inflation protection. Now, now interestingly, since a lot of the money started moving towards tips and inflation expectations have been rising a bit, you've actually seen negative returns to some of these tips bonds because there's been sort of an int- increase in, in real interest rates uh, as well. And so, I, I, it's interesting sort of writing a little bit about that that topic. Any anything in in terms of, of that area, commodities, uh, other inflation hedges that you're you're looking at that might be interesting? Yeah, we um, so the fund that we elected to to buy into um, in the summer, about a year and a half ago, of course, uh, was poorly timed by about a month. But this is a multi-asset fund, kind of a, a go anywhere fund that benefits from inflationary environments. So. It does have a fair amount of equity exposure um, in, in in the emerging markets and in EMD. So that, and of course, those have traditionally benefited from inflation. Yeah, they, it may be different this time around, but they also, this fund also um, picks from the best of fixed income. So I believe they have an overweight to credit in different categories. So it's a little more exotic, I think. Um, some of the other things, you know, we've been. We're always looking at alternatives. We're always looking at what new funds become available. And, you know, we, we talked about gold internally, and I think we talked about perhaps being more interested at a better price. You know, we know that yeah, gold is not a supply and demand type of commodity, as we all know, but the incremental cost to get it out of the ground is about $1,100 an ounce. And so if, that, you know, if you have some pricing discipline around that, it's probably not a bad place to park some money for the long term. Mm. That's an interesting perspective there. Um, maybe let's let's go back towards the U.S. So you know, a lot of people think U.S. markets have you know come far. That valuations are, are quote unquote stretched. Um, wh- what's your guys' take on on the U.S. markets and and how you end up uh, you know building your your ETF portfolios around that? Yeah. So in the U.S., we're trying to pick the best sectors in, in terms of the traditional S and P 500 sectors. 
and so we're a lot of the discussion is is how much active weight we have around the traditional sectors. You know what we're underweight to, what we're overweight to. Um, and it's interesting because we also run a U.S. core equity fund and an equity income fund. So uh, our whole team, including myself, are all dedicated to certain sectors. We're building models. We have target prices. So we have kind of a nice mix of the bottom up and the top down. And you know, I can tell you in terms of models where we're not finding a lot of value. <laughs> and that's in, um, you know, we'd had a long-standing overweight to financials. Just the valuation story was so compelling for so long, we just didn't see a lot of downside. But of course, that hurt us for a while uh, until recently. Um, and I, I still think we see some room to go, though, though we're a little bit nervous about how far, uh, how far, how fast that sector has moved up. Um, we're not seeing a lot of value, though, in the other Trump trade categories. So that would be industrials, materials, for example. You know, it's, these are great, especially in industrials. Uh, I can see the appeal of a lot of the bigger companies. They have a nice yield. They generally have pretty steady free cash flows. And they're good blue chip stocks to own, but I'm just, I can't get any upside on our target prices. Uh, likewise, for a lot of the traditional materials. Um, we did a lot of work on utilities and REITs and more bond proxy sectors over the summer, and we could not get any upside in those sectors at that time. And while they've come down a little bit, we still don't find them terribly attractive. So it's, and that was when the rates were at their bottom. So if you didn't like them when rates were at their bottom, it uh, sounds like the rates are moving up. It's going to be tougher. I know. So it's really a process of elimination. You know, I think where we probably see the most value today is in healthcare, but there are so many questions around where that's going. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially in the large cap biotech space and some of the large cap pharma companies, you know, you could you could make some assumptions about uh, pricing power coming down, and you could still have a lot of upside to those names. So we are constructive on the healthcare space right now, so we're talking which hasn't felt good. <laughs> we're talking with Jessamine Norton, the CIO of Spinnaker Trust, and Jessamine's really got a very unique background, and and I think even this this conversation right here is a is a really an interesting example of how people are using ETFs in a and passive vehicles. But what what has a really traditional fundamental backdrop, right? So your your background trained on individual stocks at the different Wellingtons and Boston companies, Fidelity, and but you're and you're also running individual stock portfolios. But then you're also using ETFs. So there's this active versus passive debate that's been going on for for a long time, um, and a lot of people using passive vehicles are just doing so using sort of active strategies around that. But how how would you frame that sort of active passive discussion? How your how your firm is viewing it? Yeah, well, we uh, Spinnaker originally just had the ETF strategy, and um, and so when I joined Spinnaker, that was obviously a departure for me given my background. But I I was intrigued by it. ETFs weren't quite as popular back then, though they'd had a, a huge upswing. This would be early 2011, and even though I I had picked stocks and learned how to do so for a decade, you know, I'd done okay. I'd had some good quarters and some bad quarters. You know, I, I think it's it's hard to beat the market. <laughs> so the idea of of trying to create alpha with U.S. Uh, ETF, U.S. sector ETFs, but at the same time mitigating the risk by owning huge baskets of stocks was something that was really interesting to me. Um, and I, I think it's a it makes for a lot of work, and we have a lot going on on a day-to-day basis. But it makes for a great blend um, and a great source of analysis to do both. Um, we have some clients who just love stocks. You know, they love to be able to talk about what they own. Um, and they also, a lot of our clients, uh, if they joined us with legacy positions, it makes sense to leave them in stocks, at least for U.S. equities. So we're always going to have to do that part of the analysis, if you will. 
And so it's a it's a nice compliment, but um, it I, I'll I'll say this: our our um, U.S. ETF strategy has nicely outperformed our single stock strategies for several years. That's a, that's an that's an interesting background there. I mean, how do you how do you see that the the trends in the industry continue? I mean, do you see more? Um, do you have a, 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 a do you worry about how much is going towards passive and ETS versus the traditional active managers? I mean, do you see I mean, where do you see that going over the over the coming years? Yeah, I um, it's interesting because I I feel as though at this firm we're on both sides of it, so I'm watching it um, I'm watching it with interest. Yeah. Uh, now, if I were at my my former firm, I might be a little more nervous. You know, it's it's hard to outperform your benchmark anyway. And when there's indiscriminate flow into certain categories, you know, I, I'd love to hear what you thought about the the low vol phenomenon in the first yeah. half of, of this year. I mean, it was just unbelievable. You know, when there's indiscriminate flow going into things, and you might say the same of uh, industrials and financials after Trump was elected, it's it's hard to fight that. And I don't see that turning. I see that as being the incremental vehicle of choice, whether you're a hedge fund or an RIA. Um, my worry is, from a stock picking perspective, you know, are you ever at the at the point where price discovery doesn't matter? You know, where if, if IBM has a massive earnings miss, it doesn't matter because flows are going into technology anyway. Yeah, it's just things I think about all the time. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question about how much active management do you need? And there's a lot. There's been a lot of people writing on this topic. Um, you know, one of the, the the guys online that I follow, um, you know, his philosophical economics blog. He's done a lot of posts on this, in terms of the the right mix between active and passive. And you know, he a lot. There are some people who believe that just the trends towards indexing is going to make the markets a lot more opportunities for the active managers. And you know, the analogy that he's used and that I that I find compelling is that if you think about a, a poker game analogy, where you have you know weak players and strong players, and if the weak players get up from the table, you're only left with stronger players playing against each other. And so that's what sort of has been happening the last 50 years is the individual investors who may be less informed that the professionals could sort of pick off, they're getting up from the table and saying, we're throwing in our towel, we're just going to buy baskets, we're going to buy ETS, we're going to buy the market. Mm -hmm. And so now it's only stronger people playing against each other. And so that seems that seems to be it's tougher and tougher. And so then the question is, you know, what what are the the opportunities that come from that, if there are opportunities? Um, but I, I do think my that's my view of the world. That's be getting tougher for the active groups to outperform. Oh, I definitely think so. And then you know, aside from that, the the fee compression is real. It's real in ETFs, and it's real for mutual funds and other traditional vehicles. And yep. so it's um. I, I suppose in the in this mid cap space, if you're an active manager, you might find more opportunity. But but I agree with you. I I am. Um, I think it's been really interesting to watch for the last five years. And certainly, if you look out over the next couple of years, uh, the macro influence seems like it's going to be just as important as it has been over the last three or four. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get so, into some of that on, on the inner, because we sort of talked about U.S. a bit here. We talked about bonds. Um, let me just reintroduce our guest one more time. We're talking with Jessamine Norton, the CIO of Spinnaker Trust. Uh, talk about the macro side and, and how, you, how you view international investments. Uh, we talked a little bit about being afraid of bonds, going towards alternatives. Maybe talk for a typical client, how much you think about U.S. international. I know a lot of people tend to have a, a home country bias. I'm wondering how much you guys reflect the U.S. versus foreign, uh, and yeah. then, then somehow how are you thinking about that today? No, that's a great question. And I um, I think that, uh, so just to give a bit of background, um, 
in my, the three, my three prior employers, I covered international equities at all of them. So I covered Europe at Wellington. I did Japan and South Korea and Taiwan at the Boston Company. And then I covered um, EM sectors, emerging market sectors at Fidelity. So coming to Spinnaker was my first foray into U.S., which is kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, th- these companies are more global than ever. So uh, you know, I think that the uh, skill set translates. But nevertheless, I think um, uh, Sarah Lewis, who led the portfolio management effort at Spinnaker early on was, before I got to Spinnaker, was a huge proponent of international diversification. That was always one of the pillars of the firm. It's one of the reasons that I decided to come here. And I I think, frankly, one of the reasons they wanted to hire me, um, because that was my background. Now, that's been a difficult uh, thing to be an advocate of over the last few years. You know, it's hard to to talk to clients about investments that have been flat to down when their U.S. uh, equities have been up. A lot of questions about why am I in this anyway. Um, yep. You know, and I, we try to revisit the eras, the era when international markets were outperforming in some years, and and emphasize that we could go back to that. You know, it's early on in 2017, but but we're back there so far. And um, one challenge we have is in our model portfolios, uh, of as a percentage of equity, we would always recommend that a client would have 25 or 30 percent of their equity exposure in in international equities. And the reality is that a lot of our clients who come to us from other places started with zero, and so we're trying to slowly push them there. Uh, I'd say most of our uh, accounts don't have an allocation that's quite that full, though we, though we try to make it go there. Uh, you know, it's, it is the home country bias is real, and the last five years haven't helped. No, absolutely, and that that probably makes it all the more reason why now we have to look at it. Um, so, so where do you, where do you think about those international opportunities? I mean, do you think international? Do you think developed markets? Do you think emerging markets? What's what's your your shifting there? Yeah, so we um, we think about all of those things. We um, we benchmark ourselves to the FTSE All World XUS. So there's a healthy uh, emerging markets weight in that index, and, and we chose that index to be our benchmark on purpose because I think. We've always had a weight in emerging markets, and we think that's a fundamental asset allocation decision that we that we um, encourage all of our clients to make. And um, so, when we're when we're thinking about international, we're thinking about trying to be invested in the best countries and or regions. So there's a lot of talk about the eurozone versus the UK versus Japan versus the different segments of EM. You know, since 2014, we've started talking more about whether we should hedge currencies or not, and if so, how much. So that, that comes into the discussion quite a bit. And, and that becomes much more macro than our U.S. discussions, of course. So what, what, how, how are you viewing that today? I mean, do you ha- what's, I mean the, it's a very tough thing, as we, you know, I've talked about this uh, many times uh, you know, off-air. But um, I mean, what's, what's the general sense on, on the direction of the dollar? You know, you've got Trump uh, on TV now talking about you know, the, the policy with Japan, and we'll, we'll get Jesper's thoughts uh, here in just mm-hmm. a few moments. The golf game is happening as we speak. Yeah, it? it's starting to, it's going down. <laughs> I'm looking at all the headlines as we're, as we're talking. But um, <laughs> you watching the Yen tape? No, nothing's really moving there to quite yet right now, but it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, what, what's your, how, do you, how do you view currencies today, and, and how are you trying to address that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take it back a little bit. Our, our first foray into hedging currencies at all was in 2014, and I remember that I'd <clears throat> we'd kind of neutralized the portfolio at the beginning of 2014 because I went on maternity leave. So I was out for, for four months and came back and really wanted to um, revisit all of our U.S. allocations and get some conviction and, and, and do something. And uh, so it took me a few months to do so, and I came away with very little conviction 
I wanted to remain underweight to emerging markets. You know, I think um, I, in my background at Fidelity, I covered emerging markets, but um, Asia was disproportionately part of my benchmark, and I spent a lot of time in China. Um, I spent a lot of time with the government companies. I covered infrastructure at the time, and so I, I was just worried. So that was easy. We we decided to we had a presence in emerging markets, but we were underweight. I didn't have a lot of conviction at the time of UK versus Eurozone versus Japan, but the only thing I had conviction on was that their respective currencies relative to the dollar were way too high to move down a path of reflation or improvement. So that's the only thing we came away with. So we decided that we would make um, hedging the currencies a big part of our investment decision. And um, I think we were a little bit early, but that was largely the right call at that point. Mm the challenge became having a really tight target price and a range and um, being disciplined about honoring that target price and getting out of the hedge positions when they got there. Yeah. And uh, I think we did a reasonable job. You know, and, and so the question, and you and I have talked about this offline, do you perpetually hedge? Do you try to make that call and, <laughs> and make it active? You, know, you can make a case uh, both ways. Sure. No, and so today, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you finish. You know, today I think... There's a lot of reasons to believe that the dollar will continue to go up. The biggest pushback you get is it's already up a lot, and it's consensus. And that's absolutely true. It's up 20% since mid-14, and it is consensus. Um, but you know, I, I think about this a lot. If Trump hadn't been elected and we hadn't been talking about border adjustability or repatriation or any of these things, we'd probably still be proponents of a strong dollar. It wouldn't be as uh, up quite as much just because of the core fundamentals of, of currency analysis, right? The, yeah. the uh, interest rate and growth differentials would still be present. Yeah, interest rates so uh, th- Interest yeah. rates was a very big factor in, in our work on what, what is created. And so a lot of people think the dollar is cheap. Uh, I mean, that the dollar is overvalued, that the euro is cheap as an example, because, you know, you had Trump's guy say the euro looks undervalued. And some of our models say, yeah, the euro does look, quote unquote, undervalued. But when you look at the, the factor research, the, the value signal was not the strongest of the signals. Interest rates was certainly the strongest. And there you have the ECB at negative 40 and the Fed's raising. So it's, 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 it's not a, it's not a, slam dunk that just because the euro looks cheap that it might do well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I read a great analysis uh, yesterday about you have to think about the countries that the euro serves. Is the euro too cheap for Germany? Absolutely. Is the euro too cheap for Spain and Italy? Well, that's not as easy to call. And, and um, so you know, that's, that's an important factor. I guess from a PPP perspective, the euro is supposed to be fairly valued at, what, 115, 117? Yeah, maybe a little higher. So. Yeah. So, but you have to. It, there's no way that the ECB does anything in this election-heavy year. That's my opinion, yeah. anyway. Well, very um, good. We're getting close to the bottom part of the okay. first part of the show. We're going to bring Jesper on on the second part. Uh, I'll just conclude this thought on currencies because it's one of my big, big topics. You know, I, I've been challenging people. Most people have defaulted to be unhedged forever, uh, and I've been been saying, you know, for a while that you know, currencies is quote unquote, uncompensated risk that why, you know, I think the year will always go up. So I think people should more and more think about it reverse as they used to saying, you know, I want to be neutral currencies. I just want to take the stocks and not take this currency risk. That's not how people think about it. Uh, I will fully admit, but it's, it's really where I think people need to go. I agree. And I think it's more important than it ever has been. 
Well, I appreciate I appreciate you saying that. So um, <laughs> we're going to come back. Second part of the program, we talk with Jessamine Norton, the CIO of Spinnaker Trust. Second part, we're talking with Jesper Cole, Wisdom Trees Japan CEO. Well, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. This is Behind the Markets. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. And we join for this half hour with Jesper Cole. He's the CEO of Wisdom Tree Japan on a day when President Trump, President Prime Minister Abe are meeting uh, in Washington, going down to Florida for the weekend. We have Jessamine Norton, the CIO of Spinnaker Trust, who also has focused on Japan and her in her background. Uh, Jesper, before I, I turn the conversation over to you to get some of your thoughts, uh, I just wanted to give you some background. Jessamine, why don't you talk about some of your background working with Japan and and with Kathy before. Okay, uh, Jesper, it's nice to yeah. talk to you. <laughs> I um, so I covered uh, Japan as a generalist for a very brief amount of time, uh, about a year and a half in 2006, 2007. Um, it was just enough time to have absolutely no idea what I was doing, <laughs> to, and to fully appreciate the cultural differences. But Kathy was the strategist uh, with whom I worked at that time, and she was great. Oh, fantastic. That's great news. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> so, so Jesper, uh, big news today is, is Abe and, and Trump are getting together. Maybe outline for us, you know, your thoughts. Why, why is this, uh, as you've called it, a match, you know, made in heaven? Why do you think what Abe is here bringing to Trump is, is really well-timed for, you know, Trump's proposals of, of making America great again here? Look, I mean, I think it's uh, it's very straightforward. And, uh, you know, to put things into context here, I mean, there's no question that the U.S.-Japan relationship is, uh, you know, from Japan's perspective, the single most important relationship that you've got, whether it's in terms of trade, whether it's in terms of investments, or whether it's in terms of national security. There's absolutely no question that, uh, you know, Japan will go out of its way uh, to make sure that uh, the Japan-U.S. relationship is going to stay very, very strong, um, you know, with the new president. Um, now, you know, uh, you remember that uh, Prime Minister Abe uh, went out of his way uh, to be the first uh, foreign dignitary, the first global leader, leader to meet uh, with, uh, you know, then President-elect. Uh, Abe met him on November 17th in New York. And so today is actually the second meeting here. And from Japan's perspective, you know, they very much want to move towards concrete deals. Um, and, you know, the president does want to have uh, run an America first policy, uh, does want to rebuild American infrastructure. And that's where the match made in heaven with Japan comes in, because when you look at infrastructure, um, there is no question that Japan does have the best public infrastructure in the world. And, um, you know, Japan proposing concrete infrastructure projects to upgrade uh, the American rail system, the American harbor system, uh, American energy facilities, etc. That's exactly, uh, you know, where we stand right now. The time has come to move beyond just uh, tweaking and uh, propagating. Uh, the time has come to actually uh, make concrete deals and progress. Well, uh, my personal self-interest here, I would be... Uh It'd be amazing if we got the Japan corp the the railway system. I mean, I take that train up and back from Philadelphia to New York all the time, and it's it's it is you know Japanese railway does work very nicely. It is a uh, Shinkansen for the Northeast Corridor. <laughs> oh man, that would be amazing. 
But I think, you know, there's, there's obviously sort of, you know, a, a great sort of, uh, you know, self-interest on the part of Japan in the sense that, uh, you know, you do have, um, you know, Japan being a very competitive uh, maker of capital goods, you know, whether it's robots, whether it's machinery, machine tools, um, you know, and, uh, you know, an investment boom in the United States because multinational corporations are upgrading their their capital stock in the United States, um, plus, you know, American companies upgrading and investing more in the U.S. economy, plus public infrastructure investment. I mean, that's three wins for Japan's exports. Yes, for what, let me get a, a quick take on, you know, one of the, the big points, and, and this has been debated, you know, there's the, the Trump is has this... Um, relationship with China is, is a complicated one and he's you know that's been a focal point and then the, the Japan China relationship is a complicated one how do you see you know the alliance there from both perspectives what do you, what do you think and maybe more important given your Japanese background what, t- tell us how you think Japan's looking at the China relationship and that you know the interconnectedness between you know as a big export and import partner for Japan well, you, you make an important point and that obviously, you know, with uh, the new White House, uh, with President Trump, every focus is on bilateral relations, um, you know, but at the same time, in reality, from Japan's perspective, it is a triangular relationship. You know, uh, the People's Republic of China does matter. Um, you know, uh, China is Japan's largest trade partner, both on the export side and on on the import side. And uh, there's no question, um, you know, that, uh, you know, the Chinese market um, is of key importance for, uh, you know, Japanese manufacturing sectors as well as for the Japanese service sector. So it is actually a triangular relationship that, that, we, are, that we are dealing with here. Uh, but as far as Abe, as far as the prime minister of Japan is concerned, you know, there's a new leadership in the White House. That's the relationship that needs to be brought on an even key right now, the relationship with the Communist Party in China, you know, it's sort of, you know, steady she goes kind of thing. Jessamine, you covered Asia for uh, a while. What's your thoughts on on how, you know, on China generally and and how in that relationship? Um, You know, it's interesting. I think um, China's a really interesting one here. I think they probably realized that the, the uh, modest devaluations of the RMB last year and, and the year before that were mistakes. And, um, and they didn't expect that the world would perceive them in such a negative light. I, uh, I think they're going to put up a tough fight. You know, I, in the end, I think US, the U.S. and Trump are the biggest, and they know that they will eventually have the most negotiating power. But I think it's going to be incredibly interesting. So do you guys overweight China, underweight China? Is that is that a place um, So we're overweight. Uh, we're slightly overweight to emerging markets now, and so just by this is more of a mechanical process in terms of how the indices work. But we, yeah, we're slightly overweight to China. Interesting. So yes, we're on on Japan. I mean, the, a big you know one of the big variables everybody's watching you know is is the yen. You know that's been a, a focal point. Is 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 Trump going to call China currency manipulator? Is going to call Germany a currency manipulator? Is going to call Japan a currency manipulator? Uh, what's your thoughts on the yen? You know, last year was big volatility, went from 120 down to 100. 
now we're back towards 113 uh, and and then you have all these different interest rate outlooks where Japan's capping their bonds at you know the zero percent cap and the US rate's been generally rising although it's you know pulled back a bit what's your what's your thoughts on the yen and how all these bond rates play into it I think that uh, you know the Japanese yen is likely to be a structurally weak uh, currency and uh, you know of course you know the frontline news um, you know, the yen is always a bit of a political ping pong. And, uh, you know, whether Trump actively is going to seek a strong dollar policy or not remains to be seen. I thought it was very interesting and, you know, almost presidential, uh, you know, that in the run up to the uh, Abe Trump uh, summit to the in the run up to the Japan U.S. summit, um, you know, had very clear statements that currency will be discussed at the G20 forum, which is the correct forum, because currencies are always much more multilateral rather than just bilateral. Um, you know, but as far as the outlook for the yen is concerned, you know, you put your finger onto it. I mean, just focus on what the Bank of Japan is doing. Uh, the Bank of Japan is capping the interest rates across the yield curve at zero. And uh, as a result of, you know, that, that basically means that they are closing the interest rate channel for adjustment. So all of the adjustment has to come through the exchange rate, which, uh, you know, suggests that the yen is likely to be a weak currency. And, you know, the driver of that is going to be Janet Yellen. You know, if and when, you know, Janet Yellen actually goes ahead and increases U.S. interest rates, the carry trade is going to accelerate and it's going to pull the Japanese yen lower and the dollar higher. So you put it back here in my camp in the U.S. It's all it's all me on the yen, not not you. No. Um, so talk about <laughs> talk about what you're uh, you know what you're excited about on Japan. I mean the, the the people we tend to talk to, you know they 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 how can I be bullish on uh, on a country where the you know the GDP is is never going to grow, declining populations. Talk about the the other side of that trade. Look, it's it's very interesting because Japan, it's, it's very easy to give Japan a bad rap, so to speak. You know, it's like, oh, my God, how can you be bullish on a country where in 150 years only 10,000 people are going to be left? You know, this type of argument with the demographics, you know, yes, you know, being very negative. But a couple of points, um, you know, the most important one is really the fact that, no, the domestic economy is actually growing. You are seeing good increases in the participation rates. Um, you know, for example, in Japan now, the female participation rate is higher than it is in the United States of America. And as a result of that, you are actually seeing for the first time in one generation, and yes, it's the first time in 30 years, you are seeing a pickup in wage and income growth. You know, nominal wages, nominal income is now growing at a rate of around 2 2.5%. Um, you know, just uh, a year and a half ago, you know, nominal wages, nominal incomes were not growing at all, and they haven't been growing since 1995. So Japan, you know, contrary to sort of the, 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 the quick off-the-cuff remarks, the Japanese domestic economy is actually starting to grow um, precisely because, you know, the labor market is tight and that tightness in the labor market is actually gaining traction in terms of Mr. and Mrs. Watanabe getting more money in their pockets. Jasmine, you have any, any thoughts you want to add or any questions you want to ask? Yeah, to, to yes, I, uh, I think I, I do think that's um, profound. I'd love to ask Jesper what he thinks about um, the government carrot of 
buying uh, companies who are more in terms of the, the QE process in place and buying companies that are more yeah. Western-minded in terms of capital allocation. I believe they're calling that the Nikkei 400 index. You know, has that been successful? Will it continue to be successful? And my other question is, if wages are going up, you know, do, do, does Mr. 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 and Mrs. Watanabe, do they spend it? You know, if the yen yeah. is at 125, is, is domestic inflation such that the, that, that depresses the consumer? These are things yeah. we talk about internally. No, and, and you're making the, the, these are the two key questions in Japan. The first one is about corporate governance, uh, because mm-hmm. in Japan, uh, you know, the first paper I ever wrote on Japan when I was a young man in 1989, it was called Capitalism Without Cost. You know, and what I tried to say is that basically corporate Japan does not care about shareholders, you know, has no cost of capital constraint. And what is happening now is that actually Japanese companies are beginning to care about uh, shareholder yield. So just to be specific, you know that, um, you know, two years ago in Japan, they introduced the corporate governance code and the um, stewardship code so that both the managers of companies and the investors of the large pension funds hold each other accountable so that now actually, um, you know, the shareholders' interests are being represented and are being focused on in the boardroom. And you can actually see that this is happening. Last year, Japan did have an earnings recession. Profits fell by about 15%. But despite that decline in corporate profits, uh, you actually saw that uh, dividends continued to grow and share buybacks continued to accelerate. And it was the first time in the history of corporate Japan that despite a cyclical downturn in corporate cash flow, the shareholder yield actually continued to grow. So that tells me that uh, indeed this uh, focus on uh, investors, the focus on rising rates of return is actually for real in Japan. And that means that now investors are getting a tailwind rather than a headwind from the way companies are managing for shareholder yield. Let me just reintroduce our guests here. We have Jesper Cole, the CEO of Wisdom Tree Japan. We have Jessamyn Norton, the CIO of Spinnaker Trust, uh, a Maine-based uh, RIA uh, in the Northeast here. Um, any any further follow-ups there, Jessamyn? No, I, I think that's incredibly I, – I, I noted that last year, too. I think it's incredibly um, encouraging. That would, had always been a criticism when I was looking at Japan. I guess I worry about the yen volatility we saw in this past year. And that, and just from a macro perspective, for non-dedicated Japan investors, does that worry people so much about the degree of conviction uh, behind the BOJ? You know, is it all about yeah. the yen? I guess can can Japan work no, even it, if the yen strengthens? No, and this this is the key issue. I mean, I sometimes say, you know, that uh, you know, Japan is the love child of the global speculators. You know, if you're a global <laughs> macro fund. And, you know, if you need to put $2 billion, $3 billion to work, you can do that in Japan literally within 30 minutes, you know, which is very difficult to do, um, you know, the sort of liquidity constraints that you have anywhere else in Asia. You know, so from that perspective, you know, dollar-yen, um, you know, being the, you know, the ping-pong ball of the global macro hedge fund community – I cannot promise you that that's going to go away for all intents and purposes. You know, I Mm -hmm. think that uh, the volatility 
is still going to stay, uh, you know, with Japan. And if it does become a carry trade, you know, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates while the Bank of Japan caps uh, Japanese interest rates at zero, you know, you're going to climb the elevator, you're going to climb the, uh, the stairways and you're going to go down the elevator every once in a while, you know, as these scarce moments you know, sort of come through. But fundamentally, I think, you know, it's the interest rate differential and, and this is important, you know, what, what, what I think structurally leads to a weaker Japanese currency is the fact that Japan's fiscal deficit really is on a runaway track. And I mean, as you know, I'm very bullish on Japan, but the one thing I cannot solve, I cannot solve the Japanese fiscal deficit, which is already at about 240% of GDP, debt to GDP, and it's growing at a rate of almost 10 percentage points. So I think that, you know, this fiscal deficit ultimately, you know, is the big driver behind the Japanese currency being structurally very weak. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of, you know, there's this question, is the Bank of Japan manipulating the currency? You know, and I, I saw somebody online quip that, you know, if they're if they're actually manipulating the currency, they're the most incompetent at it because you saw what happened last year where it got up towards 100, although it did bounce, you know, twice off 100. So maybe they did defend that line in the sand at 100. Yes. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on on the 100 level, if they were if they were defending it there. I mean, look, it's, it's, it's very straightforward. You know, I mean, if you, if you sort of step back from the sort of fun and games that you've got in daily, weekly currency movements, you know, if you step back and say, fine, the leading companies of Japan, if you look at uh, Toyota, if you look at uh, Fanuc, the big robots company, where are their break-even points? You know, where do they actually cover, you know, their fixed costs? And for all intents and purposes, you know, the break-even points for the best companies in Japan are somewhere around 95, 98 uh, dollar yen, right? So anything stronger than 95 means that the best companies in Japan are actually starting to run losses. And, you know, for the average company, you know, the break-even point is probably somewhere around, you know, 100, 105, somewhere in that sort of neighborhood. And, you know, as a result of that, yes, you know, the 100 level, uh, you know, is actually very, very important uh, because that's the break-even point, you know, for corporate Japan. Very very interesting. Yes, Bear, if I might ask, where, on the flip side of that, where is the yen so weak that it starts to introduce some inflation to the consumer? It is interesting, right? Uh, you know, I think the arithmetic uh, of uh, the terms of trade, so currency weakness, you know, uh, beginning to hit uh, the consumer price index. I mean, for all intents and purposes, for every 10 yen that the yen weakens against the dollar, you're adding back about 30 basis points, 0.3, 0.4 percentage points to the Japanese CPI. And there's obviously, you know, a six to nine months time lag, you know, that comes with that, you know, but for all intents and purposes, you know, from a Japan perspective, you know, dollar yen at, you know, 130, 135, you know, which would be about 15% weaker from where we are today, you know, that would start to, you know, potentially set off, you know, some alarm bells, uh, you know, that the Bank of Japan would actually be overshooting its uh, 2% inflation target. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. So on, on, if you think about the sector view, Jesper, um, and, and sort of we talked a little bit about small caps tied to you know the local economy. The small caps tend to be more in focus if you have a more bullish view on the local economy versus just the, the yen and, and, and the large caps. Any other views within, you know, within a sector-wise, you know, where you'd focus on within Japan? Yeah, I think that the Japanese financials, um, you know, actually are very, very good value. And that value now gets a catalyst with uh, likely earnings revisions momentum uh, turning very positive. I mean, remember, Japanese banks uh, last year got hit quite hard by the introduction of negative interest rates, um, which did force a further compression of net interest margins for the core business uh, of uh, Japanese banks. Now, you know, that negativity, um, you know, basically has run its course, um, you know, which means that the uh, profit margins for Japanese financials have actually bottomed, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, you are beginning to see that mortgage credit grows, that consumer finance grows is actually accelerating a bit of a pickup recently in the demand for capital goods from small and medium-sized companies, which means that loan volume for Japanese banks is actually starting to grow. So bottom line is, you know, have a good look at Japan's financials. They are very cheaply valued. They still trade below uh, 0.7 times book value. And the earnings momentum is actually starting to turn around. So Japan's financials, I think, are a very good uh, opportunity. Jesper, I feel very lucky you're here in New York just the day that Trump and Abe are meeting. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, Jessamine, any final thoughts? We have about maybe 30 seconds for, for some closing thoughts. No, uh, the only thing I'll say about Japan is that historically, if you've bought the if you've bought Japan around when it's trading at about one times book, you've done pretty well, <laughs> no matter what's going on. You know, so valuation is important too. That would that had always been my rule of thumb, and I learned that from someone else. So. <laughs> Yeah, and so valuations matter. And with right. the, they do matter. Improving profitability, maybe those numbers will go a little bit yeah, higher. Yeah, you know, and the financials are a huge part of the index, so that's an important, yeah. um, important thing for Jesper to have said. Well, you've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. I'd like to thank our guest, Jesper Cole, Japan's uh, Wisdom Trees Japan CEO, yes, Jessamine Norton, the CIO of Spinnaker Trust. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty McMahon, sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.